Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we're abandoning our usual format because we have a special guest. We'll only have an interview segment this week, and Michelle Rendells will join me to ask the questions. Our special guest is Tom Steyer. Steyer's the private equity billionaire who's been a political activist for a long time. His most recent causes, he founded NextGen to advocate for progressive energy causes. And more recently, you may have seen him on TV. In fact, I saw the ad this morning advocating for President Trump's impeachment. Tom Steyer, welcome to Indie Matters. John, thank you for having me. All right, I'll start off and then I'll let Michelle ask all the substantive questions. That's how it usually works. So, what brings you to Nevada besides your love of the Nevada Independent? Well, Nevada is going to be a uh, critical state in the United States in 2018. And we're announcing that we're supporting a proposition for a 50% renewable portfolio standard in Nevada by 2030. And that announcement's just coming out. So we wanted to be here to... Uh, Advocate for it. You're, you're also here for, for an immigration uh, uh, event uh, uh, on, on Thursday. Uh, uh, Michelle, I'll ask you some questions about that in a little while. But let's talk about this ballot initiative. This has been Renewable energy has been a cause of yours for a long time, along with climate change. Uh, and, and they're linked, of course. Uh, uh, it's been a big issue in this state, a lot of controversy in this state. As you know, there was the rooftop solar controversy. Then they passed uh, an RPS, a Renewable Portfolio Standard Bill, that the governor vetoed. The governor supported renewable energy, but he had some problems. So now they're going to the ballot, and you're helping to fund this? Is that what you're doing? Well, we've yes, we are in it. We believe in it, and we believe that it's particularly, it's important everywhere. It's particularly important in Nevada. Nevada happens to be the state that has the best solar energy resource in the United States. Because it's sunny all the time here? It's sunny and it's the right temperature. So that whereas between the second best is Arizona, and Arizona is obviously very, very sunny and hot, but apparently at some two months of the year, it's too hot to be the most efficient solar state. So it turns out Nevada is the Saudi Arabia of solar energy in the United States, and Arizona's number two. But between the two of them, they could actually produce enough energy to uh, produce the electricity for the whole United States. Why is this a good idea? In other words, uh, wh why is this is important to, to increase the renewable portfolio standard by such a dramatic amount over time? Well, there's a bunch of reasons why it's a good idea. First of all, if you're using renewable energy, solar energy, then you're not creating pollution and you're not making people sick. So it's going to make people in the state of Nevada healthier, breathing cleaner air, living longer and living better. Second of all, we are going to have energy in the United States. And if we do clean energy, it's a more job intensive form of you know, business. So we're going to create more jobs in clean energy than if we depended on fossil fuels. And hopefully they will be well-paying, organized jobs that get spread to every community. So on the basics of just health and jobs, this should be a big positive for Nevada, particularly if you guys push this forward and start to export clean energy. But then in addition, there's the basic environmental point that we need to move off of fossil fuels. And so basically, this is something that's saying, yes, we're going to mandate a time frame to move off of fossil fuels because we're going to force it to happen sooner. Because in order to have a clean energy economy, you need to have electricity generated in a clean way. If you're, if you're generating electricity in, from fossil fuels, there's no point in building an electric car because that means the electric car is still essentially driven off of coal or natural gas. 
So there was a bill in the legislature, obviously, that brought the RPS up to 40% by 2030. And this one is bringing it up to potentially 50% by 2030. What, what makes you think that that can be done for Nevada? And how did you choose that target? Well, it turns out that clean energy is cheaper than fossil fuel energy at this point, And that advantage is only going to grow. Right now, there's actually a, uh, an article in today's New York Times talking about energy costs in Colorado, which isn't nearly as efficient as solar places in Nevada, where solar energy is, much, is cheaper than f- fossil fuels by a ton. So the fact of the matter is pushing it from 40 to 50, really you're talking about the cheapest form of energy possible. So really what we're trying to do is bring costs down as much as possible because what's and, – and that's something where if it's cheaper now, you know that the innovations in solar panels and in, in all of the technology is only going to get better. So the fact of the matter is pushing it from 40 to 50 is going to make energy cheaper in the state of Nevada. Is the fact that Trump has a new tariff on, on solar panels going to affect the viability of a proposal like this? So for, for listeners who don't know uh, – President Trump put a 30% two-year tariff on um, solar panels imported from China. And it's an attempt, a fairly straightforward attempt, to uh, favor fossil fuel-based energy and to prevent the spread of clean energy by, by putting it at a disadvantage. But the fact of the matter is, so of course it's you know not a good thing, it's a bad thing. But the fact of the matter is I believe that the advantage in cost that solar has is so big that it won't stop it, and that over time, that 30%, even if it stayed, it goes away. But even if it stayed, we, that 30% is something that we will shoot through you know, in a, in a matter of a couple of years. So it's bad, but it's by no means determinative. And you guys are, you know, obviously at the same time supporting an effort to get millennials out to vote. Was there thought going into this that this ballot measure will excite voters in the 2018 cycle? Well, we do think that um, young people and people – we look, we think everybody wants clean energy in the whole United States. We don't think it matters if you're a Republican or an independent or a Democrat. We think everybody wants clean energy because it's cheaper and it makes you healthier and it provides a lot of jobs. So we think it's good for everybody. We do think that young people are particularly drawn to the environmental argument about this because overwhelmingly they understand they need to be in a sustainable world because they're going to live in that world longer than everybody else. But the fact of the matter is, you know, we think this is something that's going to drive turnout from everybody who's thinking about that in any kind of sensible way. We do think that millennials, people under the age of 35, traditionally have not turned out as, at as high a percentage as other people in the population. We think they have a lot to say. We think they're very well informed. We think they're passionate. And we think we need their voice. So we want them to turn out like crazy because we believe in a broad democracy. Uh, you especially like it because most of them are Democrats, right? Actually, I, th- I don't know what the numbers are. I think the fact of the matter is most young people are pretty darn independent of party. I think when you look and if, if you actually parse through it, young people's reluctance to vote has really had to do with the fact that they think the system isn't serving them. Our goal is to make it clear to them that actually it's not that the system serves them. They are the system. A democracy does not work unless people participate. If you look at everything we're doing, it's all about participation. Even the energy, the clean energy proposition that we're supporting is really an attempt to put power in the hands of the people, as in, we think this is a good idea. You guys can make it happen. 
I guess what I wonder about is a couple of the arguments that are always made for solar, and you made, and you made them a couple times here. One is the cost. It, it was much more expensive when this first started out, and, and it was easy for those who said, slow down on this, you know, you're having to subsidize it too much, we can still do oil or even natural gas for, for a while. Uh, the, the cost has dropped, but you're essentially making it sound like it's so much cheaper, uh, and maybe in the long run it is, but right now it's not. Well, I think, you know, we were just talking with somebody um, in Nevada about generating, and the numbers we're hearing are really eye-popping. And I think if you actually go and take a look at the, the, the bids that just came in in Colorado for solar energy and wind energy with storage, you'll see that it's actually cheaper to do solar and to build a new solar plant than than to continue to run existing coal plants. Where is that technology now? Because that's what I used to hear a lot, Mr. Stiers, is, is the issue of storage. Like that, that technology was not as good as it should be because that, that's a game changer once that becomes perfected, yes. right? Now, I don't know how many people listening have thought through this, so I'll just say to if you haven't, the issue about solar has become not a question of whether it's cheaper. I mean, really, you're seeing stuff that's a fraction of the cost of fossil fuels. The question has been, hey, what do we do at night when the sun isn't shining because we'd still like our refrigerator to run, we'd still like to turn on our lights, and hey, we might even watch a little TV. And see a Tom Steyer so, commercial. <laughs> <laughs> so what the heck do you want us to do? And so storage, a battery, becomes really important right. because then you can store the sunlight during the day when you're not using electricity and still power everything at night. And what we're seeing is the cost of battery storage come down so dramatically. I think it's come down something like 80% in the last five years. And this is something where we're seeing, this is what happens in a technologically driven society. This is an important thing for Nevada specifically, but it's important for the whole United States. You know, if you think about the cost and effectiveness of personal computers or phones or TVs, what you see is the first, you know, uh, cell phone was this huge clunky thing that you practically needed two hands to carry. And now it's this sleek little thing that you can fit into your pocket. And oh, by the way, it's also 10 times stronger or 100 times stronger. The computer that you would need a large room to fit in 1970 isn't a fraction of the computing power of that crummy little phone that you stick in your pocket. So the fact is, Technology works, and over time, it works unbelievably. Unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember those first uh, cell phones. They, they, <laughs> they were heavy. Uh, the other argument that you presented that always seems to me potentially overselling solar is the issue of jobs. There's not a tremendous number of permanent jobs in solar, are there? Well, what's going I think what you really see in solar is that you have a huge number of, you know, you have to build out these arrays that really what we're talking about in this, I think people are, we're talking about what I would think of predominantly what we think of as utility grade solar, which means you have big fields of solar arrays, which is what Nevada is perfectly set up for. And I think when you get that, that's actually a big construction project. And I think, you know, when you look, it's not just solar, but I think when you look at clean energy across the board, it turns out actually it is a lot more job intensive. So uh, and unless Michelle has other questions about this, I hope she'll ask them. I, I guess I want to wrap up the discussion of this ballot question. With how, much are, are you, how much is it going to cost? How much are you willing to put in? Well, John, you know as well as I do that in a campaign you never know what's going to happen. 
You know, this is one of those things where you set out from the shore in your rowboat and you don't know if you're going to have big seas or smooth water, smooth sailing. So I think that, that, that we, you don't really know what Who you have to do. Who could be against this? Who could be against this, isn't it? The I can only think the Russians. Pie? The only oh, thing only I can think Russians. is if, if the Russians or ISIS <laughs> decide to wade in. I see. So, so you, 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 don't, you don't have a dollar figure in mind. You do have partners in this too, do you not? There's a bit, yes. There's a, co- you know, there's a big coalition of people who are in favor of this. And we will be, of course— the people running this will be talking to people throughout the state of Nevada and organizations throughout the state of Nevada and officials throughout the state of Nevada to try and get them to join that coalition and make it as broad as possible. I will say this, you know, traditionally, we have always wanted to have a broad coalition that includes progressive businesses. We've always wanted to have community groups from every community because we believe that what people, people the general public doesn't always recognize that, in fact, environmentalism, clean air, clean energy is something that absolutely resonates throughout our society. And in fact, if you look by ethnicity, the number one group that supports it is Latinos, the number two group is African Americans, and the number three group is Asian Americans. So sometimes people don't expect that. But the fact of the matter is this is something that works uh, for families throughout our society and where uh, we expect business and organized labor to support it because it, it, it generally does work for everybody. Mind if we move on to immigration? It looks like tomorrow you're going to be with Dina Titus, I believe, here at UNLV, urging Republicans to support a fix for DACA. Right. You know, we're in the middle of an immigration debate. It changed every day. But what do you think is realistic to get done before the 2018 elections? We're for a straight-up clean DACA bill. Absolutely. You know, we think that immigration has become the human rights issue of our time and that in particular supporting the dreamers and extending their protection is something that we feel was agreed to by this president that we absolutely believe we want a clean dream act and we shouldn't have to give anything up for it. I think what's happening is the president ended the DREAM Act as a way of holding the dreamers hostage to trade them for other things. And that wasn't what he agreed to, and that doesn't seem fair. We want a clean DREAM Act, period. How do you get past the calls for a wall? Aren't people going to demand well, you know, It's funny because, because this president is so dishonest and because he goes back on his – if you shake hands with him, it doesn't mean anything. If he says something, it doesn't mean anything. I think the only real way to negotiate with the president is to say, this is what we're for. This is what we're not for and not budge. Because you can't really negotiate with somebody who every time you negotiate, he takes everything you put on the table and takes everything that he put on the table off the table and then starts negotiating again. I just think that's what has happened to the Democrats in the Senate. And I think that it just doesn't work. You can't really negotiate with somebody whose word is no good. Is it going to take a shutdown to force this clean DACA bill through? I don't know. You know, I think you can see, I mean, if you read the stories in the paper, it sounds like the Senate has a, uh, an agreement on budget going forward that doesn't mention DACA. And the House it sounds like, is in a very different position where it's still very much something that's on the table. So, you know, I think 
if you don't live in Washington, D.C., trying to handicap what's going to happen in Washington, D.C. is really hard. But from our standpoint, this is very simple. This was agreed to. There's nothing else to discuss in the fact that every time, you know, you keep trying to hold the dreamers hostage before they were trying to hold the um, children's health insurance program hostage, hold the children of America hostage each time to get, whether it's the wall or whatever else, you know, that doesn't seem... That seems like something that we should try to ignore as much as possible and just go forward with the stuff that are straight up human rights issues. So, you know, there's obviously the dreamers who are, you know, they're a group that's highly supported among the general American population. Right. I think Um, in both sides of the aisle. mm -hmm. There's been concern within that community that, you know, we're calling them dreamers. we're, We're elevating them. We're looking for a solution for them. But at the expense of their parents and other immigrants who maybe are not as sympathetic because of how they they came to the United States. How do you get something for... Look, we're for a path to citizenship for the 11 million people who've been here for so long. Uh, You know, from our standpoint, what's really happening, and, and I think the dreamers themselves are opposed to it, I think that the president is trying to trade their status for tougher rules about everybody else. And I think the dreamers themselves, that's why we say we're for a clean dream act, because we don't want to trade their safety for the safety of the other people, of the other 9 million people. So from our standpoint, what you're talking about is something that is a question. And for, but we think the human rights issue extends way past the dreamers. And in fact, if a society depends on the work and participation of immigrants, then those immigrants should be given a path to citizenship. And that really is something that seems to me absolutely has to be negotiated. But it's separate from the DREAM Act. And so, you know, this is the thing that's on the table that's going to expire on March 5th, which is why I think people are talking about it so much right now because of the time pressure. But I think also there's no question that immigration reform and a path to citizenship is dramatically overdue. It's something that we consider to be an absolute justice issue. And so we're four square behind it. In fact, you know, we have spent a ton of time and effort and resources trying to support, you know, that move. You talk about this as a human rights issue, as a justice issue. You know, how do you get I'm sure you have these conversations from time to time. You get talking to someone that says these people have no right to demand anything because of how they came into the United States. Why are we even having this discussion? How do you how do you change that kind of a, a mindset? Look, I think that people came here by and large to work a really long time ago. And everybody knew what they were doing here. And everybody was complicit in it. And if you go through... Uh, the parts uh, of the country where they're concentrated and working. The employers know it, their co-workers know it, their neighbors know it. It was always an important part of society. In fact, you would shut down the Central Valley of California if you got rid of everybody who was undocumented. So by the time the society has allowed them to come in and work, they've contributed to the society, they've paid taxes, they've you know, in effect, lived here for years, maybe decades, then the question is, at that point, the whole society has been involved in this situation. It isn't like they snuck over the border and nobody ever knew. They've been here for years. They've participated. They've contributed. Now they deserve a path to citizenship. 
So let's talk about. It. I mean, you, you make a compelling case for it. You, as you mentioned before, uh, it, it goes it goes across the aisle. People support the right of these kids. They were kids when they came over here, right? Through no fault of their own is the phrase everybody uses. Of course, they should be allowed to say whether there's a path to citizenship or not. But you can't get away from the politics of this. So, so, so let me ask you a couple specific questions. You accurately laid out what the Senate agreed to today. We are we are recording this podcast on Wednesday afternoon. They have they have who knows what might happen by the time we're done. But they have agreed to this. There is no mention of immigration in the deal that Chuck Schumer agreed to agreed. with Mitch McConnell. Nothing. You think he's making a mistake doing that? I think what I think is, if you're going to, what I said earlier to Michelle is what I think. If you decide that you're going to stand up for something in arguing with this president, I don't think you should negotiate it because I don't think you can negotiate. But that's with not the real world, though. God. You know that you've been around politics. You can't. It, it's, I, have you watched this president? <laughs> Excuse me, that is the real world. That's not the real world when the person on the other side of the table tells the truth. It's not a question of politics. It's a question of human beings. The fact of the matter is, when you're saying, Tom, politics is a matter of compromise, politics is a matter of give and take, absolutely agreed. That all assumes that you have an honest counterparty, that you have an honest counterparty who you believe is going to be good to his or her word. So, so that should, is not the situation here. So if you want to do a negotiation with me over something, and every time you give me something, you feel honor-bound to live up to it, and every time I give you something, I feel I can take it off the table and sell it to you again, I want to negotiate with you all the time. Should Democrats then hold firm and, and say we are not going to sign this budget deal, which includes a lot of things Democrats want, some things they didn't get, but should they not sign, this, sign on to this budget deal unless they get a, a firm, concrete deal on DACA? What I said was they made a deal to get DACA months ago. Then they got a deal from that they were going to get a vote on DACA from Mitch McConnell. As you said, both of those things seem to have gone off into the ether somewhere. You don't, you don't believe Mitch McConnell's going to keep his promise? I don't believe that actually – I'm not sure exactly what his promise since I wasn't there – was, to be fair. You heard what he said, though. I, but all I'm telling you is, from my standpoint, when you're negotiating with people like this, I would never bluff. I don't, you know, in terms of, I would compromise, but I would never bluff. So when you tell me this is a matter of principle, we absolutely have to have that, then it's a matter of principle and we absolutely have to have it. And a matter of principle means, and, and, and for people who don't understand what the term clean DACA bill means, it means you want a, a standalone vote on that bill, nothing attached to it. it it's not. This is. Do you believe in DACA or or, or not? Now, and your your event uh, tomorrow at, at UNLV on Thursday at UNLV is designed to put pressure on Dean Heller, who's a difficult guy to put pressure on because he was against the Dreamers. Then now he's for it. He was for a clean DACA bill. Then uh, we listened to a teletown hall that he did, in which he said, "No, it has to have border security uh, attached." What do you want, Heller? Uh, why do you think you have any chance with Heller, considering what what he's done on this? You know, John, you're just convincing me that my m mode of negotiating is right because they're going to probably dance and try and do everything they can. And my point is simple: this was promised. It's a matter of principle. These people have done nothing wrong. They actually came out of the shadows in order to participate in a government-sponsored program. Now they, you know, you want to basically punish them for something that it's very hard under any circumstance, Michelle, to find anything they've done ever wrong. This is the only country they've ever known. And I would say to the people who say, hey, you know, this whole argument about how they came here ruins it. 
look, the United States has had a lot of laws. And they've had a lot of laws that have countenanced things that today we would find completely unconscionable. So when I look at something like this, I think the first question we should be asking ourselves is what's just? And when you talk about throwing people out of the country who's lived here the whole time who are as American as they could be, when you talk about breaking up families and sending people to countries they've never lived in because there's a piece of paper that says you have a right to do that, then I think the actual triumph of America over the last 200 plus years is dealing with the human reality and accepting people as full human beings and treating them fairly. And that's what we're talking about. We only have a few minutes left. I want Michelle to jump back in. But but real quickly, one of the criticisms of the Democrats over the years has been that they don't really want an answer to this any more than the Republicans do because it's great to use in election years, right? To try to look, we can't get a solution. You need to elect more Democrats. Are you, are you cynical about the Democrats in Congress in this way or not? Look, we have said publicly that we disagree with the idea of not standing up on DACA, that we believe this is something where we should be standing up and that we believe that the way that you establish your character is by doing things and standing for things when it's hard. You know, I always like to laugh at the people who talk about how much everybody loved Jackie Robinson and Martin Luther King and Muhammad Ali. Because I believe when, that, when those guys were actually in the heat of conflict, most Americans didn't like them, that they were pushing against the majority to try and stand up for something that now everybody sees, of course we want an integrated Major League Baseball. Of course we want voting rights for everybody regardless of race. Of course, you know, Muhammad Ali was right. But the, so, you know, I think it's important to stand up when it's tough and so I think this is a human rights issue and you should stand up on human rights issues because they're matters of principle. And unless you're willing to do that, then how do people know how to trust you? Because it, it, you got to stand up when it's tough. It's easy to stand up for Martin Luther King in 2018 when he's been dead for a long time, 50 years. It wasn't so easy to stand up for Martin Luther King 60 years ago when people were putting him in jail and threatening to shoot him and then shot him. Wanted to, you know, it sounds like Next Gen is coming back into Nevada. You guys put a a huge investment into the 2016 campaign here. What uh, what did you learn from that? What is this? How is this time going to look different for you guys? It's good, you know, I mean, we are going to support this proposition, but other than that, we're going to do the same things that we've always done. You know, we're a grassroots organization. What we're trying to enable is for conversations to occur between Nevadans about the issues that matter most to them so that they will be engaged, so they will be registered to vote, and so they will, in fact, vote. You know, if you look at everything we do, whether it's organizing on college campuses, going door to door, or trying to support this initiative, it's all about a broader democracy with more power pushed down to the people of Nevada. That's what we actually believe in. We believe the broadest democracy is the best democracy, and we believe that if the people of Nevada are engaged on the issue, informed on the issue, then they will make intelligent, wise decisions. And so that's what we're trying to enable across the board, and that's what we did in 16, was really to try and get as many people involved across the spectrum in Nevada as possible, and that's what we're going to do in 18, is to try and go for it. We think the answer to our national problems, just so you know, John, is more democracy. We believe... The more that it goes to the people, 
the better off we are. The more that we hang with the elites, the worse off we are. So everything that we're doing is to try and push that power down directly to the voters. Do you feel that you're hanging with the elites today? Is that why you're looking at you, me? Yes. Yes, that's You, yes. You, Michelle, and I are more people. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. I, we're, we're actually uh, uh, out of time, and, and I really do appreciate your, your taking the time to spend Great some time with us. Great pleasure to be here. So thanks fun. Thanks for being on, Tom Steyer. Michelle, as always, thanks for coming on. Now, a reminder, this podcast can be heard now on KUNV, the university's radio station, at 8.30 on Thursdays, and we're thrilled to continue to partner with UNLV. Uh, we'll be back next week on Indie Matters. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. Check out the site, thenevadaindependent.com. I'm sure Tom Steyer reads it every day. I want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV, and thanks, as always, to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer. This is your part here, uh, Michelle, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. Yes, Michelle does sound <laughs> podcast smooth. Me and Steyer, not so much. I'm John Ralston. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.